Hey guys, been a while, a hot minute. I uh, went to Texas and did uh, a recording of our true crime podcast and hung out with family and then hit the ground running when I got back into town for all my wonderful clients and their work, into the month work. And I'm gonna try to get as far as I can before my phone dies. So we're going to discuss the fall of Babylon, which is in Revelation chapter 18, I believe. Let me verify. Yes. But I first want to go to why Babylon is so important, and that's going to be in Genesis chapter 11. So let's go over there. I'm actually going to put my little lamp on here on my Bible. Got one of these little cheap battery or chargeable lamps from Timu. I suggest if you like to shop to avoid Timu at all costs. I have self-control. Some of you may not. <laughs> okay. So this is in Genesis chapter 11 and we're going to start at verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. 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 Good grief. Mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves, the tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Now, I just want to say right there that God told them to go throughout the earth and multiply. They didn't want to do that, probably because of fear, because they wanted to be made famous. And so they, the whole point of their plan is to stay together instead of obeying the Lord's command. So then in verse 5, the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united, and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. And that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the earth. Now, the Tower of Babel was actually what's called a ziggurat. And it wasn't just a tower. It was a portal um, that was demonic in nature to access the dark secrets. Before uh, the flood, the angels that slept with women in Genesis chapter 6 taught them those things. And they wanted to access them, unfortunately, again. And uh, so it, the, a ziggurat is a pagan um, religious structure. It's not just a tower. And the Tower of Babel was one of the first world rulers. We've talked about him a little bit, Nimrod's idea. Nimrod is the one that started Babylon. He's the one that started um, Nineveh and a couple of the other uh, major cities, and I guess you would say influencers who also played a role in how they interacted with Israel. So Nimrod 
He is the son of Cush, or Cush, who was the first son of Ham. Cush had five sons that occupied the upper Nile territory of Egypt far to the south and in the southeast Mesopotamia. So let's look at that. Oh, it's right here. In Genesis uh, chapter 10, 8 through 12. Cush or Cush was the ancestor was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. The people would say this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. He built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia, with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and from there he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, and then Kala and Rezin, the great city located between Nineveh and Kala. Now, his identity has been debated because some suggest he's a false god, but the work he did is that he was the first, again, ruler of a superpower structure. And so that idea lends more to the fact that he's a man and he built these cities. Now, the etymology and the meaning of his name is uncertain, but most agree that it's connected to the Hebrew word, which literally means to rebel. And that with the word gebar, we have the idea of a violent, tyrannical power. So he was the ruler of Babylon, or Babel, and an earlier name for that area where he resided and um, Babylon was Shinar. In the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, the name and fame of Nimrod have a secure place in Talmudic Judaism and, is, and in Islamic tradition. In the former, he per personifies both rebellion against God and military might in the earth. In rabbinic tradition, the Tower of Babel is the house of Nimrod, where idolatry was practiced and divine homage offered to Nimrod. In Islam, Nimrod persecutes Abraham and has him thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, we know that was Nebuchadnezzar, and that could be like a, a play on words or a play on ideas in their culture. I don't know. But we have these extra biblical ideas that give credence to the fact that the Tower of Babel was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom and was indeed an idolatrous structure designed to access the supernatural realm of the gods in order to prevent being scattered throughout the world. Later, Nebuchadnezzar finished the Tower of Babel. Uh, when he built uh, Babylon, he finished that ziggurat. At the top was a place that was an, like a portal that was open to access the demonic realm. But notice the divine homage given to Nimrod. So we've got uh, the Antichrist structure being birthed in Nimrod and in his cities and in his practices. So when it says he was a hunter, it wasn't referring to hunting game. It means that he was a, uh, a world power that waged war on other locations in order to uh, conquer them. So he was a conqueror. And that's where we get the idea of the first world ruler. He was uh, the first superpower. And he was also the first one that demanded people to worship him. So the stage has been set. Things get a little bit more tricky, too, with his mom who became his wife. I mean, 
or his mom was his dad's wife. I mean, there's a little bit of some craziness going on there. I taught on it a long time ago, but I can't remember. Uh, but we see that he did not have a good reputation with the Jewish people. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says, according to Philo of Alexandria, Nimrod's ancestors epitomize evil and spiritual unproductiveness, which can only result in giants. Now, we know there were giants later because uh, David fought them. We also know, like, if you look at the, the places where God said to wipe out everybody and everything, and people are like, oh, my God, he's into, you know, genocide. No, those, if you look those races up, they were giant races. And so they were not, um, they were not, uh, uh, like, ethnicity wasn't the issue. They were not, I guess you would say, purely human. Uh, and so they were the people that defeated these people, they were giant killers. And so when you look at Israel going through the land of Edom, the Lord told them to leave them alone because they were going after the giants. David killed Goliath the giant. So some believe that giants came back during Nimrod's time, which would make sense if he wanted to know what was known before the flood from demonic sources. I mean, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting thing. I recommend a lot of Dr. Um, Heiser's stuff. I, man, I can't remember his first, Michael, Michael Heiser. Uh, I like him because he was a theologian. He was very um, like uh, word upon word, principle upon pr principle, but he, he didn't come up with his own ideas, meaning he knew like, I think five of the ancient languages. And so he could say, this word means this. Like he wasn't just trying to figure it out. He also was a student of the thought and the context of the first century, uh, the first century church, which is very helpful in understanding the New Testament, but also the mindset of ancient Jewish culture where it comes into the Bible and, and it being written and the beliefs that they had. So he's just really, really good at it. He has several books that are just fabulous. They're not weird. You know what I mean? They're just very straightforward, very educational, and easy reads because some theologians are hard to read. Nimrod is described as the archetypal evil king who made all the people rebel against God. He is also noted as the builder of the Tower of Babel and the enemy of Abraham. Furthermore, the lexical link shared among Genesis 6, 4, 10, 8 through 12, 11, 1 through 9, namely the keywords giant, Shinar, and Babel, suggest to the early Haggadahs that Nimrod might have been one of the giants in Genesis 6. Now, I don't believe that because everyone was killed except for six uh, people. So I don't believe that at all. But it's just a very interesting idea and kind of gives you some of the insight of what the rabbis believed. Some believe that he was Giglamesh, the tyrant of Eric, but there's vast disagreement on his true identity. What everyone agrees with is that to the Jews, he was, quote, the greatest sinner since the flood, who crowning evils were his claim to be divine and his willingness to sponsor the Tower of Babel. So he claimed to be divine. Very interesting in 2 Thessalonians, it says that the final Antichrist, the son of perdition, will go into the temple and declare himself to be God or to be divine. And then in Daniel, I believe chapter 11, but it might be chapter 2, we know that the final Antichrist will not um, worship the God of his fathers, 
but he himself will feel that he is God. The reason Nimrod's actions were so egregious to the human race is that the flood was God's response to the Nephilim, or giants, and the overwhelming evil and violence in the land. I'm sure idolatry was one of those evils, but rebellion in general was so horrible at that time that God wished he had never created man. I mean, can you imagine your God and you have regrets? I mean, how does that even happen, right? So it was so violent and so evil that God regretted that he had made man. That's incredible. After the flood, and as proof that God's judgments are just, one man starts a movement against God and his command to repopulate the earth in order to consolidate power, access demonic power, and rebel against God. From this event came all other idolatrous practices, obscenities, and even prostitution worship. So, again, we're looking at the the source, the uh, origin of Babylon, because that's what... You know, we're going to study next week on her fall. Uh, so Nimrod, to recap, was a world ruler. He uh, uh, disobeyed God in the command to uh, repopulate the earth. Instead, he wanted to consolidate his power. He founded the city of Babylon. He is the sponsor and um, probably the idea man behind the Tower of Babel. Uh, he also started Assyria and the city of Nineveh. Oh my, please, my cat is ridiculous. No one's after her and she's hissing. Very neurotic. Okay, so <clears throat> we've got to look at uh, Semiramis. And I'm probably saying the name wrong, but this is where things get a little bit weird. Okay, so this is from BibleStudyTools.com. In the Sumerian, Sumerian language, Semiramis's name is Semur Amat. She's a famous queen regent of the Assyrian Empire who reigned from 811 to 806 BCE. According to historical documents, she's known as a legendary warrior who exercised political power like no other, commanding territory that stretched from Asia Minor to modern-day Iran. Historians describe her as a rare beauty, a fine military strategist, a master builder, and some even say she was the builder and founder of Babylon. Hmm. But Eusebius, a well-respected ancient biblical scholar and historian, I actually read his works, so very, very good, identifies Semiramis as the wife of Nimrod. Based on a combination of all these assumptions, countless other historians and scholars have written volumes about her, transforming the historical queen, Samu, Ramat into the legendary Queen Samaramis. One of the more recent renditions of the ever-evolving lore was included in the book The Two Babylons, written in 1853 by Scottish minister Alexander Hislop. In the book, the author affirms Eusebius claims that Semiramis was Nimrod's wife and elaborates on her rise to power, citing Greek historical records as reference and proof. Hislop asserts that she was instrumental in Nimrod's plan to rebel against God, and he speaks of the woman's unusual ability to manipulate the will of men. Hislop goes on to say that together, Nimrod and Semiramis created a polytheistic religious system focused on the stars to lure God's chosen people away from true worship. Shortly after Nimrod died, Hislop reports that she earned the title Queen of Heaven. Hmm. 
when she claimed that Nimrod was a god and that her newborn son was Nimrod reincarnate. So began the worship of Semiramis and the child god and whose paraphernalia the Babylonian religious system. Hislop reports that the Semiramis's name became synonymous with the pagan goddess Ishtar, Astarte, and Ashtoreth. And he connects this turn of events to the biblical account of Israel's rebellion during the time of the prophet Jeremiah's warning. Then all the men who knew that their, their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in the lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our ancestors, our kings, and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And that is Jeremiah 45, 15 through 19. So devotion to her has been well documented throughout history. Now, this is where it gets a little bit crazy. The image of the woman holding her infant son is actually... Um, symbolic of Semiramis and her reincarnated husband, who is a god, uh, Nimrod, and a veneration of different religious groups throughout the ages. Now, some sources say that she actually married her son, Tammuz. Uh, in a, a website called followintruth.com, it says most people will be aware of the claims regarding Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. These three characters be, being the art of pagan... Hey, uh-uh. Better cut that out. Now my other cat's messing with my new rug. I'll tell you what. Okay, the three characters being the start of pagan sun god worship throughout the world. There are, in fact, actually a few different stories about the pagan trinity, as they are sometimes called. The most popular version of the story is that Nimrod and Semiramis were king and queen of Babylon, they ruled the people and turned them against the true God, Yahweh. However, Nimrod eventually died, and she, in a desperate attempt to hold onto her throne, derived a plan that would ultimately lead to not only retaining the throne, but elevate her to the status of a goddess. Semiramis claimed that after Nimrod died, he ascended to the sun and became the sun god himself. Now, we know that the Egyptian pharaoh considered himself a, a, a sun god as well. So you can see how it's kind of gone throughout the, the history of peoples where this type of worship keeps showing up. She then told the people that her son Tammuz was a reincarnation of the sun god Nimrod and that she had been impregnated by the rays of the sun. Tammuz was conceived before Nimrod died or, as some versions state, she's conceived through an extramarital source. She would later marry her son, who was, in fact, Nimrod reincarnated. This is why some versions of the story have Nimrod marrying his own mother, and in some versions of this tale, Tammuz is later killed by a wild boar. In other versions, he is cut up into numerous pieces, and his body parts spread over the world. It is, however, more often asserted as to how Nimrod met his death. Semiramis is then depicted as going around and collecting his parts in an attempt to reassemble her husband and bring him back to life. She is said to have found all of his body parts except for his male organ. This then prompts her to build an obelisk, which then becomes a phallic symbol. Some versions of the story have her commanding 40 days of mourning for Tammuz. Some even state that a wild pig should be killed and eaten after 40 days as a remembrance to Tammuz. And that after this, God came down and confused the languages 
at the Tower of Babel as outlined in the biblical text found in Genesis 11, when due to the Ill evilness of this religion, they tried to build a tower so tall it would reach into heaven, with Nimrod having said he was angry at God. So I'm not sure how much is legend, how much is truth. Did she marry Nimrod or her son? Both have no idea. But what we do know is that Nimrod was involved and one of the chief sponsors and participants in building the Tower of Babel. We also know that this instituted a religious system that has continued throughout the thousands of years that humans have been in a fallen state and at the end will be destroyed. It's also tied to an economic system as we touched base in the last teaching. So this is a great example, this story, of rulers claiming to be gods in order to keep their power. Some even believe that they are gods. That is one of the requirements of world rulers. They are antichrist in nature because they seek the worship that belongs only to God and they go after his people who refuse to do so. This is the start of the mother of all abominations, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Babel. And as we saw in the last study, the Antichrist and the other ten horns hate her and they're going to destroy her, which to me is poetic justice orchestrated by God, if I do say so myself. Now, here's a little interesting fact that I learned in Greece uh, when I was there. So our tour guide, uh, he loves his country. He lived in the United States for a while. When he was in the military, he was uh, in San Diego uh, for a bit to learn, and then he went back over to Greece. And he said that the um, Mycenaeans, which we went to the city of Troy, we got to see the runs, that something destroyed them. They don't know what it is. They just disappeared. Well, they're the source of the Greek people. And they had no history because they don't know what happened. And so he said in order, so after that, you've got all these Greek peoples that are in different city-states. You've got Sparta, you've got Athens, you've got Corinthian or Corinth. And they were fighting each other all the time. So they did two things. They first started the Olympics to where it was first just a relay event or a sprint, you know, type event, running event uh, to honor the, the runner that uh, wanted to warn the, the Athenians of the coming um was it the Spartans, I think? But anyway, uh, and so they had this yearly or every few years where all the Greek city-state kings would come together for these competitions and kind of work out some of their aggression there versus fighting each other. But they also realized that they needed to join the Greek people even more. So what they did is they invented all of the stories of the Greek gods. Hercules and, um, I don't know, all the other ones, right? And uh, that then gave them a glorious history of which to unite. And sure enough, it ended all the battles. Now, that may be the case. I personally wonder if the Nephilim, which literally means the mighty ones, if that may have kicked off some of those stories of Hercules, etc. Don't know. It's just a thought I've had. Could be. May not be. But I thought it was interesting that here we have people saying they're gods to maintain their power. And here we have the Greek people, peoples, making up stories of the gods in order to unite and maintain power over the people. So it's just a very interesting tactic. 
how you've got that government and money all tied together. And when we were there, speaking of phalanx, uh, phalanx, phalanxes, phalanxes, obelisks, whatever, um, my sister and I were in the Agora, which is um, the marketplace of Athens, and we kept seeing male parts just hanging about on display, uh, various sizes. And so I'm like, what is this business? And so our tour guide, he saw me and my sister like, what's going on? And he goes, uh, those are not obscene. Those are not uh, anything inappropriate. Uh, but what we do is any newly married couple, we give them one of those uh, and they kiss it in order to um, uh, start fertility. Well, that didn't help us in our thoughts on it, as you can imagine. And I'm like, wow. No wonder Paul would get frustrated with the Greeks. They are <laughs> very superstitious and very much still pagan in a lot of thought. And in spite of the fact that over 90% of the population is Greek Orthodox. Very, very interesting. So anyway, um, next week we'll get into the actual fall of Babylon in Revelation 18. I just wanted you guys to have the context and the origin of that city because it's actually a tale of two cities. The city of God and the city of Babylon. That's what the, the systems that have been waging war against each other all these years have been those two things. And it would just show itself in all of the superpowers as time went on. So the last one that um, uh, was Rome and they would actually, the, the early Greek or the early Bible authors actually called Rome Babylon as code. So that some of their writings and correspondence wouldn't get them in trouble with the Roman Empire. So that's definitely an example of the Babylonian spirit, I guess you could say. And all that Nimrod and his crazy family created back in the day. All right. Well, you guys have a great night. And I will see you next week. And if you have any questions, put them in the comments. And I'll answer them if I know the answers.